I'd like to read with you from Revelation chapter 12. We're going to focus on the first six verses, but I'd like to read the first 12 so that we can see it all in context. This is not perhaps the most traditional Christmas text, but I trust that after we consider it, you'll see that it is in fact a demonstration of the glory of what God did in sending His Son, and in fact a proclamation of how that was the high point, the apex of human history. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved of God, through Jesus, his Son, for the last two months, we have considered together the significance of seven women who played an instrumental role in bringing forth the Son of God. We began with Eve, the mother of all mankind. We moved on to Sarah, the first mother under God's covenant with Abraham. We considered the protective mother, Rebecca, the hidden mother, Tamar, Rahab, the surprising mother, as well as the mother of two important sons, Bathsheba. Women of every stripe, chosen by God for this blessed role in bringing forth the human line of His Son, Jesus. Yesterday we spent time on Mary who was directly the mother of Christ. And having done that, really, what more is there to say? But then we turn our eyes to Revelation, a mysterious book that completes the Bible. Here the Lord, through the Apostle John, reveals to us astounding glimpses of heaven, as well as prophetically grounded imagery 
that reveals the truth of what God was doing, not only in sending His Son, but in the age that followed. The immediate age, as He transferred the identity of His people from Israel to the church, but also in the subsequent time, as He has been spreading His kingdom throughout the world. Here we find history itself portrayed with vivid imagery. And right in the center of this final book of the Bible, we find one last chapter which we must consider in considering the mothers of Christ. Because before the apostles' marveling eye appears a great sign in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. The woman is none other than the true and perfect mother of Christ. Not Mary, though Mary was incorporated within her, but the mother who was preparing to bear Christ throughout all of history up to that time. The mother who is identified by the crown of Twelve stars on her head as Israel and as the church, the people of God, from whom came the Son of God, for whom came the Son of God. Here in these first six verses of Revelation 12, we see how God preserves His church as the ultimate mother of Christ. That's our theme this morning. God preserves His church as the ultimate mother of Christ. And the first thing we learn about this mother of Christ is that she has been prepared for her role by a defining weight. Notice how John describes her. She is clothed with the sun. Now the sun was given, according to Genesis 1, to rule the daytime. A celestial body that oversees those whose works are done in the light. Therefore a heavenly judge which declares by, by its, its bright and shining light the goodness of that which is done before it. This is a symbol of righteousness, a symbol of glory. And the woman has the sun clothing her. And under her feet is the moon. The moon, of course, is that which rules the darkness that which rules the time when men commit their sins and their works that they would hide from other men. And yet the woman stands over the moon, victorious, triumphant over darkness and the things done therein. And on her head a crown of twelve stars. This is a victor's wreath, the word that is used there. It describes the, the crown that is given to one who has participated in a contest and won the victory. And her victor's wreath comprises 12 stars, one for each of the tribes of Israel, one for each of the apostles of the church. Quite simply, the imagery of this woman demonstrates that she is the one people of God. She is Israel of old and the church of today, one and the same, united in Christ. She is the church glorious, clothed with the righteousness that has been given her by God. She is the church delivered from the realm of darkness over which she stands. She is the church victorious, crowned by God Himself. And yet this glory, this triumph, is not something she always possessed. 
Although holy and righteous and glorious in the sight of God, she began as one small and despised, defiled by her sin and weak in the face of temptation. She was born of barren wombs, often drew near to destruction, was well acquainted with defeat at the hands of her enemies. The woman's glory, the dominion she exercises, her victory over darkness came not perpetually, but after years of struggle, years of suffering, years of waiting. She was prepared for her motherhood by a defining weight. John describes that weight as the suffering of birth pangs. A woman who has just given birth is a marvelous sight to behold. That brand new mother just positively glows with the joy that is hers in that child who she holds in her arm. But it's more than merely joy. It's triumph in the knowledge that she came through the struggle of labor and she came through the long waiting of her pregnancy and now she has received the glory that she has long awaited, the glory for which she has long prayed. A woman who has given birth is a woman in the height of her glory as a woman, and it's a glory that comes at great cost, the cost of much long waiting, wondering, praying, and anticipating, the cost of much pain, suffering the indignities of pregnancy and labor, breathing through the long hours of low-grade pain that builds. The price of a mother's glory is paid in a defining weight, a period of preparation. And that's what was experienced by this final mother of Christ. She endured the longest pregnancy and labor in the history of mankind because it was the history of mankind. Her labor endured throughout from the start. She felt the first pangs of her pregnancy as she was ushered out of the garden. She experienced pregnancy's discomfort as she languished under the slavery of Egypt. She felt herself growing ungainly during the years of wandering in the wilderness and during her years in Canaan, feeling the confusion of anarchy in the time of the judges, experiencing alarming hardships during the age of the kings, feeling the deep depression of loneliness when she was cast off in exile, enduring the sharp pain in her return of being under the thumb of Gentile rulers. Her labor pains intensified, causing her to cry out. First, as enemies surrounded her in her return, and then as it seemed that God had fallen silent for decades and even centuries after. Brothers and sisters, in these times of waiting... She learned to no longer trust in herself, this people of God. She learned to not rest in the deeds of her hands or the works of her mighty men. She learned instead to trust in God who had made her. To rest in his promises by which he had called her. To pray for the fulfillment of all that the prophets foretold and to yearn eagerly for that time when she would be held by the God whom she loved but for whom she was yet too defiled 
She needed that time of preparation. The people of God needed that time to learn where their hope could not be found and where alone it must be found. And yet her labor was exceptionally hard. Because in addition to the labor, she also experienced the terror of murderous opposition. From the very start, from the moment she began expecting her son, she felt it, a malevolent force waiting in the wings, always near, occasionally glimpsed, the hatred growing as time passed. This corporate mother of Christ portrays God's people, and from the start, God's people were being pursued by a despicable enemy. Witnessing that enemy, John describes it as a great red dragon. Picture a monster, fierce and huge and the color of blood, like the woman herself. The dragon's imagery is all symbolic. Seven heads represent rulership, represent kingdoms. The dragon has a mastery of seven, which is a perfect fullness In other words, he has complete control over the world's governments, over the world's rulers, as the age of Christ approaches. On those heads are ten horns. Horns in prophetic imagery always depict power and might. The dragon's power is extensive throughout the midst of the ancient world. And it possessed seven crowns, which are kings or rulers. To this world... The dragon, the beast, is authority personified. They would bow before it, they would seek its blessing, and yet its authority is a stolen authority, ripped away from man by means of temptation. What else do we know about this enemy of God's church? Verse 7, we heard, tells us that the dragon began a war in heaven against God and his angels. Verse 9 goes on to tell us that he sought to lead the whole world astray and that he took with him in his rebellion a third of the angels. This is none other than Satan himself, the ancient serpent first revealed in the garden who would stop at nothing to lead men astray from God. And that explains his horrific desire to destroy the woman's son. John explains in verse 4, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. How despicable that is. How ugly. And yet remember what we saw all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Satan had led Eve and then Adam to sin against God. And God in response promised that he would raise up a son from the line of Eve. The son would fight against the serpent, would fight against Satan. And though he would be grievously wounded, he would crush the head of the serpent. And Satan, the dragon, he sought to prevent that at all costs. He sought to destroy the son before the son could crush his head. Now that's a fool's errand seeking to overturn the plan and the purpose of God. And yet Satan is proud. He's convinced that he can overturn the plans of God. And so he pursued the woman throughout her pregnancy, throughout history itself. In fact, this passage shows that the whole Old Testament, from Genesis on through Malachi, reveals this conflict. When Cain killed Abel, 
Satan was wielding him as a weapon against the offspring of Eve when Pharaoh sought to kill Israel's sons and then ultimately to extinguish Israel itself. The dragon was working to extinguish the woman's seed. Every attempt against David and his line was an attempt to devour the son. From Saul's repeated attempts on David's life to Athaliah's attempt to wipe out the line of David to the imprisonment of Jehoiachin and his brothers. The dragon was pursuing the son through Haman, whom Esther conquered. And he was calling the shots through God's enemies in the years of the the judges and the kings and the persistent enemies after the exile. The dragon didn't stop even at the very end. When the son was born in the person of Herod and he sought to kill all of the, the sons of the region of Bethlehem. This despicable enemy pursued both mother and son relentlessly, and still he failed. He failed. In Bethlehem's chill night air, a baby's voice pierced the darkness, proclaiming triumph over that ancient enemy, proclaiming that he had failed his every attempt to stop the promised son of Eve, who would bring him defeat. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. This was the son, says John, who is to rule all the nations. The Greek there is exceptionally emphatic. Who is to rule? No, who is destined, who is mandated, who is absolutely certain to rule, to reign, to exercise authority over all the nations. And how is he to rule? The, ver- the verb that's used there is poima- poimino, which is literally to shepherd. He is destined to shepherd the nations, this son of Israel, this son of God. His is a rulership, but more than that, his is a protecting and a nurturing and a guiding and a building up for the good of those whom he rules. And to that end, he will wield a rod of iron. Jesus, Savior, meek and mild, sure. But also Jesus, King who reigns with the utmost authority. He comes as judge and king, the son of love, but also the judge who is just and strong. And when he has grown, the son will take up that rod by which he will discipline the wayward sheep, but by which he will also exercise judgment against all who would stand against his people and his heavenly father. We read all of that and it puts us in mind of the Psalms. Psalm 2 I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This one is the son, not merely of Israel nor merely of the church. This one is the son of David and the son of Eve and the son of God himself. This is the son who will rule over the nations crushing those who resist God and reject Him while exalting and preserving all who kiss Him and give Him honor. Or we think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is the one who came to defend his people from all enemies and from all evil, even as by his staff he guides us and directs us in the path of life. 
Satan, the dragon, despite his eager pursuit, utterly fails to destroy the child. And John tells us that the son is snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, does that seem a bit odd? The apostle skips right over his life, his miracles, his teaching, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, all the way straight to the ascension. Why? Well, John's written about that elsewhere. And he wants us here to focus on the the end game. The dragon sought to stop it all. He sought to prevent the victory of God that he had promised. He sought to prevent the rescue of the people of God who trusted in him and he failed. Not only was the son born, not only did the dragon fail to devour him, but the son was caught up to heaven where now he reigns at the right hand of God, victorious, triumphant, and outside the reach of the dragon who has been cast down. And now that he has done it, victory is assured. We await only the revealing of what's already been completed. Folks, this passage summarizes world history in six verses. The woman is made glorious in victory. She begins in deep humility, but she gains triumph and glory after enduring a long struggle and much pain. She bears her son, who is absolutely certain to shepherd the nations. He comes to bear an iron rod. He comes to protect and to prosper his own while defeating utterly all who stand against God. And that woman, the mother of Christ our King, she is us. She is Israel, prepared by her long wait. She is the church, delivered by her son and awaiting his return. She is us and we are her. And Christ, the Savior and King, has been born. Born of us, of our flesh and blood, but also born for us, that we might be delivered from the evil one. How can we not celebrate that gift? Brothers and sisters, in the birth, life, death, and ascension of the Son is our triumph. With His coming, Satan's defeat has been assured. Sin's destruction has been sealed. Death's downfall is finally at hand. And we have been given the victory. It's merely a matter of time now until the fullness of what He has done is revealed. Until the absolute certainty is unveiled to all the world. How can we not worship? How can we not rejoice at that? And yet in the midst of our celebration, we must not forget that our enemy does yet endure. With the birth of God's Son, the dragon's defeat is utterly and completely assured. And yet we still await the full revealing. We still await the full unveiling of what he has done. And while we wait, the enemy is angry. His plan failed. His last chance has been thwarted. We, the mother of Christ, stand facing a dragon who has been mortally wounded, its lifeblood flowing out, its ultimate end at hand, and we stand vulnerable in its presence. That's not a good place to be. So God, says John, sent his people out. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Folks, this is what happened in the book of Acts. Acts 8 tells us that when Stephen 
died in Jerusalem, the first martyr after Christ. The church fled into Samaria and into the Roman Empire, north and south alike. Before long, God's people had gone to all the major cities of the empire. Those were wilderness lands. Those were spiritual deserts inhabited by unbelievers. And yet that's precisely the place that God had prepared them to go. Because already there were outposts of Jews there. Already there were outposts of the woman. People who knew the word of God. Who were awaiting its promises. And now God's people come. And they tell them about the truth. And some of them take hold. And the church grows. It's rooted in that soil that God has prepared. And pretty soon, the word goes out to the Gentiles, to the people beyond the flesh and blood of Israel. And they too receive the word and come, taking hold of the one who was promised to the people of God. And that's where we are today. We live in that desert place, far from the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We live here under the care of God, looking to Him to meet our every need, trusting Him to preserve us from the dragon's wrath. And here we wait, longing for the end when the Son shall fully reveal His victory. Here we will stay, says John, for 1,260 days. What's that mean? Do the math. That's 42 months, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time. That's how it's portrayed elsewhere in Revelation. Seven is the number of fullness. So seven years is the fullness of human history. It took 1,260 days before the sun was born. Half of human history passed before finally the promises were fulfilled. The sun came, victory was attained, and he went to rule in heaven. Now the other half of victory has to pass. That's not a precise calendar date It's a symbolic rendering that tells us that He was, that His coming comprised the apex of all human history. The fulfillment of the promise that was spoken in the garden happened right at the center of man's life. And now we await, not aimlessly, not without purpose, because we are being used to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that through His seed... Shall all the nations of the world be blessed? And that's what's happening as we go out and we tell them what Jesus has done. As we go out and we testify to the power of Christ to overcome sin and death and hell itself. As we go out and demonstrate to them with our transformed lives how God makes an absolute difference in Christ. How He turns sinners into saints. How He makes marriages overflow with selflessness, how he causes children to rise up and call their parents blessed, how he enables God's people to rejoice even in the midst of their grief, how he allows us to face even death, even death with absolute confidence knowing that it ushers us into the presence of our Savior. As we live during this time, times and half a time, this second half of human history, we live as the triumphant mother who has become the bride who awaits the return of her beloved husband who will clothe her openly as she is clothed already spiritually with the righteousness that has been obtained in Christ and we await with joy because the victory is already ours 
We might not see it yet. We might still suffer the brokenness of this world. But we know that's only for an instant. And what comes afterward can never be quantified in days, months, years, or times. Because it is utterly endless and we will spend that time in the presence of God, in the presence of His Son, using to the fullness of our ability all of our gifts and all of our opportunities without any stain of sin, without any bit of brokenness. And we will do it under the glory of God. That's what's coming. That's the gift that is yet to be unwrapped. And we wait like that little child who sees that great big gift wrapped up, sitting under the tree, wondering what a wondrous glory it might hold. We're given a glimpse. We've shaken the box. The day of unwrapping comes soon. Until it does, we rejoice because the victory is ours. Life is ours because of the Son who has come and has obtained the victory for us. May the Lord speed the coming of that great day when we see it all fully. May He fit us for that day by His Spirit. And may we long every day to greet the coming of the Son with the joy that filled the heart of Mary when she held her infant son. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You have accomplished the fullness of Your promises in the sending of Your Son. And that we await now only the final unveiling. Enable us to stand firm until that day. Joyously looking forward to the time of your son's return. Eagerly celebrating the revealing of his victory. And even today as we live in the wilderness, trusting him to sustain us to shepherd us, to protect us, and to prosper us in all the work that He sets before us. Add to our number greatly, we pray, those who with us await the coming of Christ again. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.